Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's guest today is Eric Hines, Director, Business Development, Mergers and Acquisitions at Smith & Nephew. In this episode, Giovanni and Eric discuss how strategics evaluate MedTech startups, positives to engaging strategics early in raising money, understanding timelines and the decision process internally at corporates, and much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Eric Hines. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. So Eric, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on MedTech Money. And before we jump into the story of who you are and where you are and how you got to get there. I wanted to share some reasoning behind why this podcast even exists. So I've talked to thousands of medtech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. So my goal here was to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs and investors and bankers like yourself to help those who can benefit from the information and hopefully for generations of professionals to come. So the way I imagine this is the audience that's likely going to be listening is a mixture of experts and novices. However, I want to extract your stories and insights and advice to share with what I imagine is the first time founder or CEO and has no clue of really what lies ahead of them on their journey of raising capital or the resources available to them. And so I thought that the best place to start was learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the reason why I love having you on this episode and to hear your backstory, it's, it, which is quite unique within itself, is I really did want to highlight the perspective of corporate strategic investments and also adding some of your individual flair as to some of your other experiences that you're either aware of based on where you are or either some of your other experience that you've had before even joining where you are now. And I'll leave all that a mystery for right now. I have two open questions that I want to ask you, and then we're going to finally reveal who Eric is and what is that you do and jump into corporate investment strategy. So, Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> so the first thing that I wanted to ask you is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of medtech startups and companies? And why or why not? Or what am I missing? So I think you're right about people being the lifeblood of startups, because without people with the creativity to solve problems and and pursue the unknown, you're not going to be able to have any innovation in this space. So, of course, you need money to get there, though. So capital raising is very important to be able to allow the entrepreneur to see their dreams become reality and uh, 
So I think it's really going to be helpful to have this conversation and others that you're having as part of your podcast series to make sure that they're set up with the strongest foundation possible as they, they enter the journey of entrepreneurship. Cool. Thank you for that. And the other question is, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech professional and building your career as you have, and now landing in the corporate strategic world and looking at that from a business development standpoint, would you do it all over again? Or what would you do differently? What do you want to do differently and why? Well, that's a really interesting question. So when I first ended up um, going to college, I actually wanted to go pre-med and become an orthopedic surgeon. So thinking back, uh, that was 20 years ago, I think it would be amazing if I would have pursued that path. And actually, if I could do it again, I would love to go to a school like the University of Illinois in Champaign, where they've created a new engineering-based medical school. So they actually get to understand how to develop new technologies, new products to be able to meet the clinical need and, and also learn the clinical side of medicine. So that wasn't there 20 years ago, but I would absolutely go and, and do that if I had to start things over again. Well, that was interesting. I think anyone who's listening to that, maybe they even have children or someone who they can advise to possibly take that route if that's uh, that's what they want to do. But that sounds interesting. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. But anyway, thank you. And so now let's jump into who is Eric? You started to allude to that by what you possibly would have done from a university setting back in the day. But um, tell us about yourself and where are you now? How did you get there from where you were? And what are you doing now with who and how are you doing it? Sure. So um, my name is Eric Hines. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I'm a father of three young boys. And, uh, and my wife and I have been fortunate to have been able to uh, live in different areas of the country, really being able to be exposed to different types of businesses and meet different people and, uh, and be able to pursue new challenges together. And so my um, career history has really had a couple different themes tied to it. So I'd say the first one is that I've always been in the pursuit of challenges. Uh, the second is that I always wanna venture outside of my comfort zone and learn new things. And then the third is continuous learning. So I've taken opportunities to be able to learn in formal settings like, uh, like with Stanford or Northwestern, but then also informal independent study with some of the work that I've done looking at things like patent law or project management. And so I think that's really important as you develop your careers to always be learning. Uh, nobody knows everything. And um, I've been very fortunate to have worked with some of the greatest people in the industry and just learn from them with every deal that I do. Um, I learned something new. So starting out, I, I really was fortunate to have started my career at Medtronic. So that's what I call the era of having a global med tech foundation, doing product development engineering on their uh, spinal devices. Then after that, I ended up uh, moving out to California and uh, got experience at Intuitive Surgical in the product marketing side of things, managing the Da Vinci Surgical System instruments and accessories. And so that was really a great opportunity to be part of a high growth Silicon Valley type of company and uh, learned a lot from all aspects of product management, downstream marketing, capital sales, 
uh, and just working with phenomenal people on some really tough business challenges. Uh, the third era I'd say is the area, era when I went to Zimmer, Imres, and actually started my own company called Heinz Ventures. And I see that as kind of the era where I was dealing with a lot of turnarounds, change management and crisis management. Um, Imris ended up going through a, a chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is one of those things that you never really want to face as an entrepreneur or a business person. But it really looking back was a phen phenomenal leadership opportunity because uh, you never expect to get into that situation. But when you're in that situation, it really gives you a good opportunity to be the leader of the team to be able to work with your management and the investors to see the best possible outcome. And then at, at the end of the day, just have confidence that you're gonna get through this uh, when one door closes, another one opens and to just uh, you know, have a very positive attitude about the situation. And then the fourth era I say is the one that I'm in right now, which is corporate strategy and business development. So I've been with Smith and Nephew here for four years, starting out doing strategic development and then once our corporate strategy was developed, I ended up joining the corporate development team. And now I'm 100% focused on M&A transactions, uh, which include the early stages of identifying what the targets are and the landscapes that we're, we're interested in, uh, developing relationships with those companies and investors, and then um, being able to develop the investment thesis pitch the thesis, develop the financial modeling, and uh, lead the whole process from due diligence all the way through closing. So just to shed a little bit more color on that, it sounds in the current role that you're at right now doing this strategic as well as corporate business development, are you in this more, and by the way, that's for who? So the strategic business development work that I do is to support our investment committee and the board of directors at Smith and Nephew in the decisions that they're making to do acquisitions to be able to further our inorganic growth strategy. Okay, so let's assume going back to the potential audience of this first time entrepreneur slash CEO about to raise capital, not knowing what to do. Maybe they've been 100% purely entrepreneurial or maybe they're, it's a graduate coming from that University of Illinois Champaign program that you just had mentioned and they want to start their own company, right? Maybe not even understanding what corporate or strategic development really is. So are you saying being in Smith & Nephew now, you're in this representation of Smith & Nephew, but outward facing role where you're actively looking at what startups are being developed, what are they doing, what other investors exist, and you're almost in this pure form of looking at the landscape of how this could somehow be incorporated back into Smith & Nephew, whether it's for an investment purpose or an M&A pipeline. Yeah, so I have to be aware both on what's happening internally with things like our organic development projects and where are the gaps within the technology or the capabilities that we have in-house, and then how can we fill those gaps with external technologies? So I also partner with our team that's uh, called the Research Technology and Innovation Team, and they have technology scouts that are working with universities and startup companies and venture capitalists to start to identify those technologies that are probably about six to 10 years out from being commercial um, so that we may be able to develop relationships 
with things like uh, co-development projects or distribution agreements so that we end up getting experience with those technologies. And then that's really oftentimes one of the first steps in a, in a larger M&A strategy. So you started to allude to this, and I think that might even be somewhat of the answer for this question. But for all those listening, now that we're getting involved into it, um, I want to have this open-ended question to set the stage. Why do corporates have investment arms or business development arms? I mean, if you think about it, once again, coming from the perspective of not knowing anything about corporates, right? Let's just say you're fresh out of college with a great idea and you want to develop a medical device company, a med tech company. Um, when you think of the Medtronics or the Smith and Nephews, this big, large entities, and they have obviously operations and a lot of products inside and a lot of people inside, and they generate revenue. You don't necessarily think about them, especially if you don't know, as always looking to just go out and buy new things or have this strategic arm of just constantly looking for investment, right? Which is great to know that they exist. But um, as, a, as opposed to just a big, large med tech company, they're also outward facing to look at M&A and look at making investments. Why do corporate strategics even have investment arms? So Giovanni, the reason why a corporate like Smith and Nephew would have an investment arm or look at business development opportunities is because first and foremost, our internal R&D teams are not going to be able to stay on top of a lot of the enabling technologies when it comes to things like digital health or diagnostics or areas that are really outside of our core competency. And so that's why it's important that we have arms that can allow us to identify potential partners in those areas and then be able to serve as the link to connect those technologies with our core business or our core development projects to be able to then create synergies where Smith & Nephew brings to the table the channel and the worldwide presence and, and um, regulatory expertise to be able to bring these products to market. But then we leverage the technical know-how that um, an innovator or an entrepreneur ends up bringing to the table. So if we make it basic, you guys have this outward facing approach to look at technologies to potentially, like you mentioned, either develop a partnership, make an investment, acquire. But if, if we ask the, the simple question, is there more to having a corporate strategic invest into an earlier stage or even a med tech startup in general at, at various stages um, than simply having the entrepreneur say, yes, I have an investment from a big corporate. Now I have my strategic acquirer who's going to have the first rights to acquire me. And then on the flip side, the, strate the, strate the strategic <laughs> acquirer um, is only making investments into startups out there to fill up their M&A pipeline. Is it really that binary or that simple? It's really not that simple. It's all going to be case by case. And it's also going to vary upon the company uh, that you're talking about. So some of our competitors actually have venture arms and they're focused on identifying and making these minority investments and then managing those investments over time. That may be part of a larger M&A strategy, or it may be that they just want to be able to have that stake in an early stage technology to be able to have more visibility to what's going on with the technology development and the company in a way that somebody who's not an investor would not be able to have that visibility. Beyond the capital that an investor, or I should say a corporate strategic investor can make into a startup, um, 
are there any added benefits? Like we talk about when we talk with venture capitalists, for example, we, we have, or even angels, we have this uh, notion of good money versus bad money, right? And, and sometimes if a company or a startup company is just desperado for capital, they just t- take whatever in front of them sometimes, which long-term or even in the short-term could turn out to be not worth the money that they even took from the beginning based on something that was negative or a negative outcome or consequence. So beyond the actual investment or the money that a corporate strategic can provide to a startup and act simply as an investor, what other added benefits could a corporate strategic offer a startup? I think whenever you think about adding a corporate investor to your cap table, it's important to think about um, why you're doing it. So some of the benefits, the intangibles and non-financial benefits of doing so would be to be able to expand your network to talent, whether it be management or customers or KOLs, uh, that that strategic may be able to help facilitate conversations to, to help you along in your process. The other benefit is that a strategic can give you guidance about what we're looking for in terms of a target company when it comes to the due diligence work that we would be looking at at the time when we would be assessing an acquisition for your exit. I think that could be incredibly helpful for entrepreneurs to be aware of because then allows you to put your focus on those aspects of the business that are risks, that are risks that if mitigated or at least controlled would be able to have a, an outsized contribution to the value creation of the company. So some of those things include compliance and being able to talk to your strategic about when and how to be able to engage with healthcare professionals uh, to become part of your team. There might be some considerations where if you don't think about it, uh, you, you may end up having a situation that becomes a red flag in a future due diligence effort. You could prevent those things early on. And uh, I think the corporate a board member would be able to help provide that guidance. Also with things like quality systems and regulatory pathways, big companies like Smith and Nephew have a lot of experience in in these aspects. And I think that that's a a very big value add of having a strategic uh, like Smith and Nephew be on your board. So that's a lot of added value beyond simply money or capital that they can invest in. And to take it the next step further, for clarity, and it's not a who's better situation or, or question, but to highlight, are there things that a corporate strategic investor could offer a startup beyond capital more than a traditional venture capital firm can offer? Well, I think what you get with this with the strategic investor is you've got that operational expertise that you can tap into. Um, and that's extremely helpful when you've got the challenges that an entrepreneur runs into on a day-to-day basis to be able to bounce ideas off of uh, a corporate that may really have a different perspective on how to address those decisions that need to be made. Because the corporate is, um, is wanting to be able to nurture this business so that it's an attractive target for acquisition someday. And so any input that we can provide to help make sure that you get to that end goal is going to be really important. Um, you know, not to say that, that uh, venture capital investors wouldn't be able to offer that. There are certainly investors that have phenomenal operating experience and 
and also just uh, financial management experience to bring to the table. But that's one of the benefits of having a strategic is it's just a strategics also are mindful of the the strategic decision making in going into an investment versus just a financial uh, aspect of about that investment. So, so that's something else that you'll see from a strategic uh, investor that's different from a VC. And you brought up a very good point because I want to now go on the flip side of that. So we now talked about the benefits of a strategic corporate and share as much as you can or as little as you can't. <laughs> but um, what are the downsides of taking on a strategic investor on your board or even as an investor? So some of the downsides that could come about if you take on a strategic investor is if the strategic is asking for terms like a right of first refusal, that could get you into a situation where it makes it difficult when you're looking at exit opportunities. Because for instance, if we were to take a, a rofer on a series B investment, um, and then you're looking to sell the company, it could be that you know, our management has changed or our strategy has changed. So five years down the road, we may not want to execute that rofer still there. And so then the question is for the other investors, is Smith and Nephew not doing the acquisition because they don't see value in the, in the target or is it, you know, for, for whatever other reason. And so having that uncertainty and the unknown is one of the things that you also really want to minimize um, anytime you're running a business. If you could eliminate unknowns, it's always better for you. And then is that, is that helpful? It's incredibly helpful. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm learning a bunch already right now. So I'm hoping that the audience is too. Okay. Uh, what do you, this concept of, of co-investing, I mean, I've run into, I don't want to say thousands or even, I've run into a bunch of companies that I've seen take on strategics onto their board or as investors, Edward, Smith and Nephew, Jane, Jay, you name it. But more and more recently, and I don't know if it's a trend or it's just what I'm remembering right now, but what's this concept of co-investing or when a company has more than one strategic investor within their investors? Like if Medtronic is a co-investor with Boston Scientific, for example, or Abbott and J&J, &J, whatever it may be. Um, talk about the dynamics of either upsides to having more than one corporate strategic investor, what are the downsides, and just this general concept of co-investing? Well, my perspective is if you're making an investment, it's something that you see as being a potential um, opportunity for creating competitive advantage. And so one reason why you wouldn't want to co-invest with another strategic is because you're providing and building value to a small company. And if your plan at the end is to be able to acquire this so that you have competitive advantage in the market, then that can create a conflict of sorts. So I think that that's one of the challenges that you could run into in a co-investment with another strategic. On the flip side of it, there are some investors that have strategic uh, venture capital arms, and but their investment philosophy is much different than, um, say, a company that's looking to make an investment as, as a first stage to an M&A deal. So some investors that are out there may make the investment and that venture arm may be completely different than the actual business unit that's you know, pursuing the market. 
And so in that case, it might be a benefit to be able to have a, another strategic at the table because with the company that has a venture arm, you know, they may decide to make an investment in a company and they find that as management turns over, the new management has a different philosophy and they're no longer interested in that asset. And so the benefit there is that while that venture arm still made an investment that's going to be good, it's, uh, it's allowing that company to build in their early stages. But they also now have an option for a strategic who actually does see a strategic fit and has management that would be interested in doing an acquisition at some point. So I think that's one of the, the hedges that you have to think about. And it really all boils down to who the investors are because every company has a different investment philosophy. And I'd recommend talking to CEOs of companies that have strategic investors, like those that have venture capital arms and learn from them about what the experience is like. And if, you know, maybe they could even bounce ideas off of their board members and say, you know, if we were to have an investor come in, that's another strategic, what, what do you think your, your venture group would think about that? What would be the pros and cons? And I think you'll find that that's a really helpful discussion. A lot of CEOs would be happy to, to share their experience with you. And I want to take a little bit of fun right now um, and, and give some, some hypotheticals, but also work through some theoreticals as well. So okay. you're, you're in this corporate strategic world, right? So you get to see on that side of the table and you've provided some really sound advice and guidance and insights as to how corporate strategics think. Mm -hmm. um, but imagine you flipped on the other side of the table and now Eric starts a med tech startup. He's always wanted to start a med tech startup. He finally gets a chance to start a med tech startup and now he's going to go raise capital. Are you thinking about going directly to strategics? Are you diversifying and, and doing venture and strategics? Are you, what are you doing? What do you, and what do you know what not to do when dealing with strategic investors? Once again, if you were a CEO of a med tech startup, knowing what you know. Yeah, no, if I was a CEO of a med tech startup, the first place I would go for capital would be friends and family. Um, and then from there, be able to really leverage your network and make sure that you bring along investors that you have really good relationships with. Um, that's really critical in knowing who the people are that are investing in your business because it's, uh, it's a roller coaster ride and you need to make sure that you've got investors that have the tolerance to be able to handle the, the ups and downs that will come with uh, the business development. And that's agnostic of corporates or venture or anybody, right? That, that yeah, yeah. Giving is just anyone you trust. Yeah, that's right. I would say that in an early stage, it doesn't make too much sense to spend time with strategics. And the reason is it's all boils down to the risk tolerance. So strategics are not going to want to be in a, in a first round. Um, at least my experience has been that we really want to be in, in a later stage of, um, uh, of investment. Um, you know, the other thing is that strategics are going to take a lot longer to make a decision about whether to invest or not. So if you're looking to be able to build a business and you want to hire your, your VP of engineering to, to start building out your team and developing IP, 
uh, going the strategic route is also going to take a, a very long time. It could take six months or longer just to be able to go through the process that it takes to get that kind of investment approved at a, at a big strategic. So uh, that, that's another value with going with uh, uh, friends and family or angel investors, because they usually are able to make decisions a lot quicker than a company would. Uh, and then for VCs, you know, VCs and professional investors are always going to be mindful about the terms that, uh, that govern that, uh, that capital raise. And one thing that you could find is that they're going to be asking for terms that are really going to be in the investor's favor. And over time, those types of terms create a precedent that in your next round, in your next round, what you agreed to early on is still going to persist over time. And so it's really important to be aware of the, the terms that you're agreeing to and, and think back about, you know, why would we accept or entertain that term? Um, and, uh, and what would be the impact, not only for this raise, but for subsequent raises, and then also for an exit, uh, because some terms that are agreed to early on may create issues for us as we start doing our due diligence. Well, so thank you for that. That was the the flip side perspective of what you would do. So that's that's good. Um, I, I wanted to also be, because I've it, it almost seems like a trend where I didn't hear about it maybe ten to eight years ago, and then like from seven years to maybe up until about two years ago, there was almost like this trend where. Um, you would hear these startup companies who had strategic investors with a first right of refusal um, or to acquire the company and they had locked in prices. They just had to hit milestones. And as soon as I hit them, it was like a trigger. And I have, I, and maybe it's just me, but I, I haven't heard a bunch of those deals um, as of immediately lately. Um, but there was a few of them or regularly I heard about them. Like I said, that two to seven years ago timeframe. Um, and, you know, I was talking to several of the CEOs who had those agreements in place and it was a bittersweet situation where they loved it because all they really had to do is just be operationally focused and hit those milestones. And they knew that it was imminent that they were going to get acquired. I'm sure there was a little bit more complexity than that, but simply enough. Um, mm -hmm. On the flip side, they might have signed up for a lower acquisitionary price based on the, hitting those milestones, um, which is a security or safety net, but they probably could have got a bigger price if they just sailed into the abyss and just constantly hit milestones and, and raise capital, right? So it was kind of like a conservative play, but also a guaranteed play and it gave up a little bit on the extra yeah. side. So, um, you know, specific to the heart valve space, I, I, I witnessed a big, huge summer of 2015 of multiple mitral valve replacement technologies getting taken out um, with very limited clinical data for astronomical prices, 300, 400, 500 million. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a couple that had these triggered acquisitions based upon milestones that were 150, 50, 250. And they happened, they occurred but obviously not those cowboy prices that happened in the summer of 2015. So that topic in general of strategic corporate investors locking in a acquisitionary price based on milestones versus a startup who just says, 
thanks, but no thanks. I'll gladly take your resources. The potential, if the price is right, be on my board, but I'm going to continue building and whether it's with additional venture capitalists or other avenues of equity. What's your, st- what's your thoughts on, on that style of figuring out or situating a business? Well, so I think it really all boils down to what the risk tolerance is of the entrepreneur. Is this something that you're looking at as far as a, a long-term time horizon to be able to really build a business and own it, possibly even pass it off to your children someday? Or are you going into this with the intent to sell the company? And develop, depending upon the, the, the type of technology that you're talking about, the product development roadmap can go from you know, one year to 10 years. And so I think it's important to be mindful of what's your, what's your objective at the end of the day for the business? Um, the next thing is your risk, risk tolerance. So when it comes to valuation, there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, one, one of those being the, the uh, macroeconomic environment. And right now we're seeing a lot of frothy valuations in the public markets. And so it, you know, it's different than it was yeah, at the depth of the COVID-19 situation for sure. And so that's something that unless you have a crystal ball, you're, you're always going to have that risk about what's the market going to be like five years down the road when I'm able to go through all my development milestones and maybe have some clinical or regulatory milestones. So I'd say that if you're the investor that really wants to be able to have confidence that you're going to be able to sell your company and all you need to do is achieve the development milestones. Yeah, it's an offer in the hand is it could be pretty good. But if you're um, less risk averse and you have the confidence in your technology and you you understand the long-term time horizon that's needed for these types of investments and businesses, then you can stomach, um, you know, being able to adapt to what the market brings. And I would say that you wouldn't want to sign up for a deal that has a, an option like that uh, because you may be able to get a higher valuation. Uh, the other thing is with competitive dynamics and um, having multiple bidding opportunities, that's another opportunity for you to have a, a better valuation than just having one bidder that uh, has, a, has an option to acquire. And then going again on the other side of the table, what are the ups and downsides for being that corporate strategic investor who makes that lock-in acquisition price? Well, so the upside to that is that you're able to execute a product development project outside of the walls of your company. So you may have um, more tolerance for longer timelines for those development projects because you know they carry higher risk. And so you invest in those with that intent that this is a research and development project. You're hoping that it's gonna achieve the commercial goals, but it may not. And uh, if you can have a team of focused individuals that all they're doing is thinking about bringing that product to market, that might be an, a, a good environment for that product development to take place versus your own company where you know we've got some core projects we're focused on, but every now and then we have something new come up with um, MDR or, or manufacturing that requires us to take our focus off of what we're doing now. And so that's one of the values of being able to make an external investment in a company like that 
be able to put money to give them the capital they need to do the development project. Um, a company like Smith and Nephew could also provide a ton of expertise with upstream marketing and customer requirements and design for manufacturability and a lot of the things that a small company may not be thinking about. Um, but then if we are able to have an option to acquire the company uh, upon hitting a certain milestone, then now that helps us meet our investment objective to be able to acquire a technology that then brings us competitive value. And we don't have to worry about the risk of another buyer coming up and picking that off. So yeah, it's a good, it's a good investment structure. And I think that you may find that occurring more and more just because, um, you know, from an R&D perspective, it's tough to be able to recruit and retain talent. Uh, it's tough to be able to build internal competencies to develop a lot of the, the newer technologies around digital health and uh, robotics. Uh, you, you really need to look for outside development partners and a startup environment is a perfect place to be able to do that kind of work because you've, you know, the, they're built for developing into the unknown and taking the risk and having the management team and everybody in the culture come together to be able to do those kind of projects. And, and like we mentioned early on in the opening of this, that there's no real silver bullet to raising capital, right? And it's not a paint by number situation. Mm -hmm. um, and even though receiving advice on the how to is great, oftentimes it's what not to do might be even better in order to then make sure you're navigating the line, the minefields and then whatever happens and fills in those positive gaps, it's just your own story to tell later on. Yeah. Um, you can certainly, and if you can, I'll ask the question anyways, but if you can share and you can change names and, you know, just like they do in the movies, right. Based on a true story, but names have been changed for confidentiality. But is there any examples and stories that you've either been a part of or heard of where it was a startup and a corporate strategic situation and from either perspective that you could tell that it was just like, wow, those were aha moments or those were like, oh, damn, that happened. Like, I can't yeah. believe that happened. Are there any good anecdotal stories that you've been a part of um, from a company and corporate strategic standpoint that are worth sharing? Well, let's just come up with a hypothetical story. So say we have a company that's owned by Joe and a company that's owned by Henry. Joe and Henry are two of my sons, by the way. Uh, so these two companies are both working in a, a space to develop a new thumb joint replacement for the days when, you know, the iPhone is going to lead to a lot of osteoarthritis in our thumbs. So, you know, 40 years from now, I think this might be a pretty hot market. And so these two companies are working on this and they're at the point where they want a Smith and nephew to come in and assess an investment. So what happens? Joe's company, we go there, we start our due diligence. They're open about answering all of our questions. They've got processes and procedures that they're following. They've got documentation to show things like what the valuation was of their, their capital raises, um, how was the valuation determined, who were the investors. You've got the paper trail with the checks you know, from those investors that have cleared the bank. And uh, there's no unknowns or ambiguity about things. You know, it's, it's well laid out. Um, just like a design history file would be if you're working at a company like Medtronic. Whereas Henry's company, we go there, we have some meetings with management. They can't tell us about the procedures they have in place for things like, uh, I don't know, HCP compliance. 
and they're kind of making it up as they go, or they're bootstrapping things, or we have incomplete documents in the data room that really make it look like they're kind of working on the fly for things like financials or, or um, you know, other documents that are being requested. And when it comes to an investor, I think any investor, is that risk is going to impact your valuation. And so if you could be like Joe and have really polished documents, be able to have confidence in what you're working on so that you're willing to sign up for things like earnout structures, then that's going to end up getting you a much higher valuation than Henry's company over here, where it seems like there's a lot of things that we're not learning about or that the data rooms just not being populated quickly. And it feels as though, you know, Henry doesn't really have his act together. So if he doesn't have his act together on the simple things that we're asking for, then the question is, well, what else are they hiding from us? And so that's going to certainly impact the ability to get a high valuation, but then also the ability to execute the deal at all. Because in our position in corporate development, we have to defend these investments to the investment committee and the board of directors. And the last thing that, that we want to do in our um, professional lives is have a deal that after it's done, you find all these skeletons in the closet that end up destroying value. So and, I think that's a good example of uh, what to do and what not to do. And that was a great example because it paints a very clear picture. And I, I want to go back to our conversation last week, and, and I'm going to try to hopefully tease it out because we, we stumbled across a topic when we were mm -hmm. talking about um, negative side effects of what companies are doing earlier on that when they go to get due diligence done by a corporate strategic like yourself, you mentioned a couple of topics that were like, okay, that happened. Yeah. And um, because of that happened, we're going to end up having to pass because of X, Y, and Z, whatever that may be. And I wanted to see if I could jog your memory because that was a really great point that I'd love the audience to hear. Yeah. So I think it all goes back to what's your long-term intent for the business as an entrepreneur. Do you want to own this and pass it on to your family? Because in that case, uh, you could do a lot of things and you end up living with the consequences. But if you're going into your business with the intent to exit, you have to be mindful about how each decision you make could be seen in the eyes of an acquirer. And so some things to think about would include any kind of third-party agreements with items like leases for core IP. You know, what are the restrictions placed upon that that may or may not be attractive to the company that would be looking to acquire this someday? Um, you know, leases, are lease arrangements set up with conflicting parties where your, you know, your, your brother is the landlord and then we find that out in our diligence. That's not, not something that we like to see and all that has to be unwound. Or the other thing is if you have um, surgeon in, investors on your cap table, there are times when, when we go through these deals that they may end up becoming quite diluted at the end of the day. And as an investor, they might not be too happy with, with what the terms are of an exit. And you know, the last thing that we would want to do is you know, be put in this conflict where we've got customers that you know, may be having a negative impact to an investment that they made um, when we're just you know, making, making the deal. It's, the business is business, but a lot of times there's this human element to it. And so that's one of the things I've come across where you end up having either employees or you know, people who are part of the company who have other relationships with the potential strategic acquirer. And it just, um, 
you know, it just creates an opportunity for conflicts to occur. And I know it's probably very difficult to be able to think about these things when you know, you're early on and, and just building your team and building your investors, but it's something to think about because um, we all want things to be positive for everybody that's part of these, but you know, sometimes there are, there are hard decisions that need to be made and you don't want to put a company like Smith and nephew, for instance, in, in the position of having to kind of pick up the pieces that are left behind. So I think that's um, one of the lessons learned that I've seen. And I'm glad that you brought that up because the, the surgeon aspect on being on the cap table was the point that we were talking about earlier that I really wanted to make sure that the audience heard. I think that's a fascinating one that is very easy to to lose sight of, especially when you're building a business and you're happy to get surgeon investors, et cetera. And then all of a sudden in the distant future, it becomes an enemy or not a good relationship. Yeah. I think that I, you know, some surgeons have had a lot of experience with these small company, um, you know, private company investments. And so they, they are well aware of the risks that, uh, that are in front of them. Um, but others may not be. And, and that's where you end up having this situation where you may have a, a, a great surgeon, but he doesn't have the business or the investment experience to really, um, you know, be able to bring that value that you really need. And it could possibly create risk as well. So it's just something to be mindful of and really who you're bringing on as an investor, make sure that the timing is right. So, you know, why are you bringing them on now? Um, and then what is that investor going to bring to you? Is it just money or is it also you know, all the intangibles that we discussed before about the expertise to bring to the table to help you as a, a CEO uh, lead this business and, and end up having a great um, outcome for everybody? And I know we're now talking more about what happens later on during due diligence for either a potential M&A event um, or potential even investment, but let's just stick on the M&A side when there's doing all that due diligence. Um, just to give another point of validation, I was doing a podcast last week, actually, with a good friend of mine, Olivier Daros, who's a founder of an investment banking firm called Mavi Technologies, and their specialty is um, helping Western companies, Israel, Europe, United States, North America, um, bring money or develop partnerships, JVs, licensing agreements, et cetera, in China. And one of the things that he said is a watch out for Western companies looking to raise capital out of China, whether it is through a partnership, a license agreement, et cetera. Um, if you're selling the rights to your IP to China, for example, and they're giving you millions of dollars as non-dilutive cash to go run your operations out of the United States or Europe, when Smith and Nephew, for example, or Eric calls them up and starts doing due diligence on an M&A deal, um, and they find out that it's a great, sexy technology, and we would love to have this, oh, wait, we can't commercialize this in China because you sold the IP and the like. So that's another watch out that was very interesting to learn last week. And I think it's just bringing up and validating another point to you that what you do while you're in the journey of building your business, even though it might seem like a quick fix or a great small little victory along the way could have massive ramifications down the road. Yeah. Well, it, it does get to the point emotionally, whereas an entrepreneur, you're, you're looking to be able to raise the capital. And, you know, when you have people come to the table with, uh, with their checkbooks open, you know, you're in a different mindset, um, but you really have to step back and, and think about these other perspectives when that happens so that you don't end up making mistakes that, that you can later regret. regret. 
I wanted to, to touch base on this. We haven't really given depth as to like, for example, when I talk to venture capitalists, it's a very clean conversation based on their investment philosophy. They typically have a minimum ticket. They typically have a time horizon of which they'd like to pursue an exit for based on whether it's a traditional VC of 10 years um, on the fund. Um, they have what they will invest in, what they won't invest in, in terms of a technology style, and then even their stage, right? Like, I think the names of series A, series B, series C sometimes are being blended at this point um, and sometimes not following a traditional definition as they might used to. So they tend to stick away from only, I only invest in series B. Sometimes it's, um, they have to have regulatory clearance or approval and that's it. Sometimes it's regulatory clearance or approval and a little bit of revenue generation, or sometimes it's minimum 10 million in annual revenue generation. Other times it's, we only invest in R&D projects, right? Or at, at a minimum, first in man, something like that. So uh, when we look at strategics, and I'm sure they all have their own investment philosophy as well, but to your knowledge, for me speaking to Eric on this, whether it's Smith and Nephew or just your general understanding of how corporates look at them, what is the typical structure of a corporate strategic when they look at um, making an investment? Is it geographically limited? Because they're multinational, do they invest all over the world? Do they go early stage? Is there any corporate strategics that do want to get involved in the R&D project? Or is it really only when that clinical validation is there so they can tuck it into their portfolio in three years or less? Talk about that. Well, I think every single company is going to have a different philosophy in, in terms of corporate development strategy. So companies like Smith & Nephew, for instance, we did do minority investments in the past, and we've actually changed our strategy away from those. And we want to, well, and it's because we've had a lot of M&A opportunities that we've been pursuing over the last 24 months. And so those have really taken the team's attention you know, for doing the deal and for integrating it successfully. Um, so what we are looking at doing now is to be able to do more things like co-development agreements or distribution agreements where Smith & Nephew could serve as the, as the upstream product management expertise for that startup company so that you end up developing the product that meets our needs. And then now we could think about, do we distribute it? Do we um, license it? Do we acquire it? And so it just opens up a lot of opportunities to be flexible, depending upon how the project ends up going. Um, so I, I think that that's gonna be where things are gonna head, at least in terms of um, Smith and Nephew's perspective. Um, the other thing about it is that there are some technologies where it doesn't make sense for them to be acquired by Smith & Nephew because they could provide value to a number of other surgical specialties. And so, um, you know, if we were to acquire it, the company would end up having, you know, we would offer a fraction of their valuation. So I think that's another thing to be mindful of is sometimes acquisition may not be the path that's, that makes the most sense and brings the, the most value to your shareholders. Um, I think that the other perspective is that we are a multinational company. And so we are looking at opportunities around the world. So it could be China, it could be Europe, anywhere. So, so that's the benefit of going with a company like a, like a Medtronic or Smith and Nephew, where we do have that footprint and, uh, and, and we're able to place those bets in areas where technologies may be developing that, um, you know, that are outside of Silicon Valley, where a lot of VCs spend their time. And then is there any, do they get into general philosophies on minimum ticket size? Like, I mean, if, if someone reaches out to you or you reach out to them, they're like, okay, listen, I know that you guys are raising this and 
we really don't invest anything more than 10 million or we only invest 5 million or more. And we typically keep 20 million over the life cycle of an investment in case we have to go back into the next round. Is there anything in that specific or is it still case by case? Yeah, I think with that, it's case by case, at least um, from our perspective, every deal is going to have different circumstances. So we don't have any kind of a rigid requirement for that. We, we of course, do want to make sure that any investment that we do make ends up having a, a return that's higher than our cost of capital. So, um, but as far as minimum ticket sizes and things like that, that we're not uh, that stringent. Um, I think it's going to be much different than a venture capital firm where you've got limited partners that have invested capital in the fund for a specific type of investment. And so you really have those guardrails well-defined. Um, with corporate, it's much more flexible to be able to serve the needs of the, of the investment. And, you know, there's so many variables, it's hard to, to have a really rigid structure in that regard. And then for all those entrepreneurs listening out there to foment or start conversation, I mean, do strategics reach out to the startups that they choose to reach out to? And that's really a, a one-way dialogue where, okay, I just found this startup. My name is Eric. I represent Smith and Nephew. I'm going to go after that one and they should be lucky to hear from corporate strategics or are there ways that entrepreneurs can actively reach out to strategics like yourself? How does that work? I mean, you know, it's, it's easy enough to put together a list of med tech VCs that invest in med tech and you can take a Gatling gun approach and hopefully send the right email to the right person at the right time. But that's yeah. for more traditional VCs. What about how do people interact with corporate strategics? How does that work? Well, so I think the first thing to, to realize is that this is all a relationship type of uh, business. And so you don't want to approach the strategic at a point when you're looking to either sell the company or um, get funding. You want to be able to have those have initial conversations well before you get to that point. Um, and so I find it best to be able to meet with entrepreneurs at conferences like the Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, where I'm there for three days. I don't have any other distractions going on and I can maximize my time meeting face-to-face -face with people. And so that's really one of the most valuable opportunities that, um, that I try to pursue. Um, you know, the LSI conference over in Dana Point is another great opportunity to be able to do that. And there are, there are several meetings where um, you really wanna take advantage of those opportunities to meet with the business development leaders at these companies and just be able to get the relationship going. And also realize that it, it, uh, it's very difficult for a corporate to be able to move at the same pace as a small company. So although you may pitch something to me, it, take, it may make, take me months to be able to do what I need to do to have the right conversations in the company, make sure that we have a strategic fit, that there's a plan to you know, actually develop value here with this relationship and, and be able to go through the process. Um, so, so don't be discouraged if you don't hear back within a short amount of time, but sometimes I do say, no, I'm sorry, this doesn't meet our strategic, uh, goals at this time, but, you know, here are some things to consider, or, um, you know, I'm also happy to facilitate connections with BD leaders at other companies where I think it may make more sense for you to have a conversation with those companies. So being able to really leverage the network is another important aspect of our, our positions here in corporate development. 
before I forget, before we wrap up, I, I, you did bring up this point a while ago that I wanted to come back to because I think it's very important for especially entrepreneurs who feel under the gun and they're setting their own windows and timeframes of closing around or raising around. You mentioned this aspect of it takes time to close funding from a corporate strategic. So I just want to close off our conversation today with now I'm a startup. I'm in conversations with Eric. Eric is expressing interest in me. And from the time that that interest is really moving forward to the time Smith and Nephew's money hits my bank account, what can typical startups expect? And how does that process really unfold? Well, so the way that it would work is that you have initial conversations with either the, the leader of the BD team that's working on these types of opportunities, like myself in orthopedics, or with our, um, our technology scouts on the RTI side of the business, or maybe with our upstream marketing directors who are also aware of what our strategic needs are for the portfolio. So those are the best entry points into a company like Smith & Nephew, because we know who to talk to and and we also have the, the long-term horizon where we're not thinking about decisions from a quarter to quarter basis. We're thinking about how this business might be able to help us five to 10 years from now. And so that's really important. So then the next thing that I need to do is start to reach out to our internal subject matter experts and turn them into champions for your business. So it's a lot about awareness at first and then be able to have use both soft and hard touch tactics to be able to get them to understand the product and the customer need and the business that you're trying to build and then see where the strategic fit is and then how we can generate value through synergies by combining the two companies or doing a partnership deal. And that takes, um, let's just say a month and a half to be able to do and really build that story. Then we have to pitch that story to our investment committee. We have to run financials and look at what the financial impact would be and um, and then and then uh, be able to negotiate what the term sheets would look like for for the uh, opportunity that's in front of us. Uh, that could take a couple months in itself. And so at the end of the day, it could take six months easily to be able to do these transactions um, because on top of it, the other thing is that we, we are also working on other deals at the same time. So we may not have the bandwidth to be spending a lot of our time each week on this one deal. So there are a couple of factors that come into play. Of course, one of the things that I like to think about in being a leader of this function is how can we make sure we are efficient in the time, realizing that the counterparty has cash that they're burning. And, you know, we, we want to be mindful of that and not waste anybody's time. So we are looking at ways to be able to track where, where these projects are over the period of time and where they are in the process and, uh, and do our best to accelerate decision-making. Um, and the one thing that really is helpful is to be able to have transparency when it comes to requests that we have around things like your investment deck or um, your, your pro forma, uh, because then that helps us with the work that we need to do to build that investment story. And, uh, and then it's going to move a lot quicker than if it takes a while for us to get some of these key things that we need to be able to make our decision. And I want to demystify this, and it could be a very short answer, but it's going to be a very strong generalization. I know that it hmm. depends every single time, but for those entrepreneurs out there listening, taking corporate strategic financing and money and capital into perspective, once again, very general, would you say 
corporate strategic terms on a term sheet versus a venture capital firm are less or more aggressive, draconian, partner-ish, sinking your teeth, aggressive, meaning harder terms and leveraging? What's your typical take on the venture capital terms versus the corporate strategic terms? I would say that because the corporate strategic is going to know more about the risks in executing what needs to be done and also what the end goal is, we may have more tolerance than a financial investor who may be coming to the table with a lot more unknowns. Uh, and those unknowns are going to translate into contractual protections like liquidation preferences and things that, that help offset that risk that the financial investor has in your business. So I think that that's probably the, the, the approach that we would take in that situation is that you'll find our terms are much more collaborative. Um, although we of course are looking out for the needs of our, our shareholders when we make these investments, um, we do have a much longer time horizon as well. And I think that that also will impact the types of terms that you'll have because a VC is gonna have a specific timeline when they want things to happen. And uh, depending upon the agreement um, or the structure, uh, the corporate may have a different take on that. Okay. And to wrap this up, I have found this to be incredibly educational for myself. I've always wanted to learn a lot more about the corporate strategic way of life and how that affects raising capital, especially for med tech startups. Um, this last question that I have, I know that you're based in Memphis. This is 100% for me. Um, is it true that Memphis has the best barbecue? 100% true. And Rendezvous <laughs> is the best. So next time you come to Memphis, uh, let's go grab a, some a ribs slap. and some beers over at uh, Rendezvous. That works for me. That yeah. works for me. So Eric Hines, I have to say thank you so much for being a part of this, for contributing, for demystifying the corporate strategic world of how that looks at investing and even M&A for med tech startups who are developing their journey. And um, wanted to say thank you again for taking the time and sharing your wisdom and insights on this one. So Eric Hines from Smith & Nephew, this is MedTech Money, Demystifying Raising Capital. Thank you, Giovanni. That was a pleasure. A lot of fun. Look forward to the next one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.